Luke 17. This is a beloved passage that has a lot for us that I hope to draw out this morning. But first, by way of sort of introduction to this particular scene, uh, there's a, a phrase that appears throughout the Gospel of Luke that's not particularly unique to him, but is perhaps more prominent. It, go back a couple pages to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, I want you to see this because it helps us, I think, sort of get into, if, you, if, if this is possible, get into sort of the mindset of Christ and his apostles uh, as we go through the Gospels. Notice Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is sort of the first sort of indication that Jesus has this determination in mind. He needs to go to Jerusalem. And from this point forward, really, there's this theme peppered throughout. That though Jesus is, is interacting with sick people and, and people that are destitute and people that need his healing and people that need his teaching. Uh, throughout it all, he is focused squarely and singularly on traveling to Jerusalem. Notice just a couple verses down in verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Go with me to chapter 13, verse 22. Luke chapter 13. It says in verse 22, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. In our text in verse 11, you notice the same thing. Chapter 17, verse 11, it says, On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. He's continuing. Notice chapter 18, verse 31. Chapter 18 of Luke, verse 31, it says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Why? That everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And notice verse 28 of the following chapter. And here, this is the triumphal entry. The, sort of, the, the quote-unquote uh, final sort of leg of the journey. It says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. After all of those years of ministry, years of ministry that Jesus has spent healing folks, performing miracles, teaching people uh, out of the Old Testament, teaching them about himself. Here, he, in chapter 9, throughout the rest of this particular gospel, there's this theme peppered throughout which says, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. That's where his attention becomes focused on. His, his, all of his thoughts are set toward Jerusalem. And with that attention, we are likewise to understand that he is setting his attention on going to the cross. As he has just made clear in chapter 18 to his apostles, that's why I'm going there. Of course, they don't know there's going to be a cross and a phony trial and a crown of thorns. They don't really realize all of that is coming. What's in the apostles' minds, you think, when Jesus is saying, I got to go to Jerusalem? He is about to be crowned. We've thought that this guy was the Messiah all along. We've been kind of hinting around it. We've seen little clues about it. We've seen all of these little evidences that say, this guy is the Messiah. And so with Jesus going to Jerusalem, the holy city of David, the city of Zion, you would likewise probably think, if you were Peter, James, or John, look at what he's about to do. 
He's going to go get crowned. He's going to rise up an army. The kingdom of heaven is going to be established. He's going to overthrow Rome. That's what perhaps they were thinking. Jesus, of course, has something entirely different in mind. He is well aware that as he goes to Jerusalem, he's going towards his own death. He kind of has that in the back of his mind. Indeed, if you just read the Gospels with this sort of mindset, I think it helps enhance and clarify some of the points that Jesus is trying to make throughout his interactions, throughout his illustrations. Almost like the cross that's behind me this morning. You can almost imagine a cross sort of overshadowing every step that Jesus made and every word that Jesus said. Because he knows, this is why I am here This is why I've come. This is why I came in the first place. And the closer he gets towards that city, the more vocal he gets with that mission that I'm going to the cross. That's why if you go to the Gospel of Mark, he you don't have to, but you can in Mark chapter 8. He first reveals that what he's going to do there is he's going to die. And of course, with every promise of his death comes the promise of his resurrection. Things which the apostles are still confused about in the days leading up to his trial and his execution. You see, throughout all of these times, Jesus was trying to lead people, usher people along, so that they too could make that confession that you are the Lord and you are the Christ. He has been determined to show that, yes, indeed, he is the long sought after Messiah. And he is going to establish a kingdom. It's just... Going to look a little bit different than what they thought. Because he's the Messiah who dies. He's the king who wears a crown that's made of thorns. He is the king whose kingdom is way more inclusive than anyone could have ever imagined. Because not just being a kingdom of Israelites who are in the Israelite bloodline. And those who are a part of that kingdom shall prosper. Jesus says my kingdom is vast and wide and welcoming. What else do you think he says in chapter 19 of Luke? That very famous phrase where Jesus says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He's showing us a, a wonderful bunch of truths. Just that, yes, he is the king, and his kingdom is established through death. And that kingdom is way more inclusive than anyone could ever have first thought. And indeed, that's a point that Luke really stresses, this gospel. Unlike The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke really emphasizes this sort of, if we can say, this insistence that Jesus has on welcoming people who other people would probably not welcome. They would just give them a stiff arm, give them a little shun. He actually embraces them. His heart is drawn out towards the people that the world would rather stay away from. We don't want to have anything to do with them. We don't want to have anything associating with them. And yet here we have Jesus constantly reversing that script. Constantly showing us that yes, God is okay with coming and embracing and being in close proximity to those whom the world deems. Off limits. Just by way of example, Luke records for us that wonderful story of the shepherds being the first evangelists of Jesus' birth. 
We have the Gospel of Luke telling us about, um, about the wee little man, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who is welcomed by Jesus' loving embrace. And stories of demon-possessed. And yes, even stories of lepers. Which brings us to the text here this morning. As we're going to see, I think, the Gospel on full display. In these verses right here, Luke 17, 11 through 19, we have exactly what Jesus has sought after to show people in the world, to demonstrate through his actions, and to, yes, declare through his word as well what he would do for a world of sinners, for a world, we could say, of spiritual lepers. I have three lessons this morning that I want to draw out from this particular text that I hope will explain uh, the gospel in a very succinct way. First of all, the first lesson is uh, a lesson about our common condition. A lesson about our common condition. Notice again verse 11 through 13. Notice it says, And on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And he was met, or excuse me, and he was, as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers. Who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So as Jesus and his apostles and other followers perhaps are journeying along towards, in this trek towards Jerusalem. They're sort of on the borders of northern uh, Samaria and southern Galilee. They're in a very remote location of the ancient world in those days. And this was apparently prime real estate for societal outcasts. Indeed, it's just to say that this route that Jesus has chosen, this specific route, wherever he was and he's coming down to Jerusalem, he intentionally went through this particular area. He chose to go through leper country, if you will. Others might have chosen a different route. Let's stay away from that area. We don't want to go near there. We want to keep a really good distance. It might have been hazardous another way. It might have, regardless, he is intent on going through here. Because again, he's wanting to show us and show his apostles just what he and the God that he is incarnate is all about. As we find out later in verse 16, this group of lepers, this ten, was a mixed group. They weren't just of one nationality. They're mixed. As one is a Samaritan, the inference is that there's perhaps other Samaritans, but they're not all one nationality. They're mixed of Jews and Samaritans. Which I think is an important note to just keep track of. They had a common condition. So whatever racial tensions might have existed between them before, they were sort of pointless now. They had this mutual understanding of the same misery that they all shared. The same sorts of heartache they could relate to one another on in a very palpable way. And uh, such heartache and such misery and such conditions that they all were afflicted by reduced whatever social barriers were between them before just to nothing. What would it matter now that a Jew was hanging out with a Samaritan? They were given a new identity by which to identify themselves. They were lepers. No longer were they a Jew who could live freely and openly and follow all of the customs of Judaism. They were a leper. 
And this one, too, was a Samaritan leper. And such is why they stood at a distance, as it says in verse 12. As you likely know, this was in keeping with all of the, the, the very strict religious codes. And, yes, even health codes that were laid down by Moses. In the books of the law, Leviticus 13 and 14, spend a great deal of time detailing the ways in which you can diagnose someone with leprosy and what to do if they do have leprosy, how you're supposed to keep them out of the camp and so forth. And in fact, I'll just read sort of the culminating verse of all that is Luke, or excues me, Leviticus 13, chapter 13, verse 46. Where it says in the book of the law, he, that is one who is declared leprosy, uh, declared having leprosy, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean, he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This isolation that they were forced to exist in. was Something that I can't even imagine trying to get around and, and wrap my head around. No outside contact, not even from families. There was perhaps a designated spot where families would be able to leave them stuff from home, perhaps, or or food or items to keep them alive. But otherwise, no outside contact, no uh, association, no embrace, no familial uh, conversation. All you had... If you happen to live in a leper colony, were other lepers through whom you could share stories of your affliction, perhaps. Or stories of the good old days that you used to enjoy before this horrible disease took over your life. The designation, as it said there in Leviticus, unclean. It was like a scarlet letter. No one wanted to hear that word said about them. And receiving such a verdict, receiving a verdict of unclean was almost uh, like receiving a death sentence. And in fact, many lepers were sometimes often considered already dead. Because there was no cure for them. There was no hope other than perhaps a divine miracle coming and clearing up your leprosy. Otherwise, you just had to hope and otherwise you just had to suffer. Sounds like a miserable existence. And yet again, we have to notice in our text in Luke 17, Jesus is purposefully going through this exact country. Going through a place where he knows perhaps that lepers will be. It brings him into close proximity with those who were off limits. Which I have to imagine didn't sit too well with his disciples. (laughs) Imagine their conversation. We're going there? There's plenty of other ways to get to Jerusalem, Jesus. We don't have to follow this path. I think your GPS made a wrong turn. Can we please put in an alternate route? No, Jesus is determined, I think, to go through this particular area. To show them and to show us likewise. That this is what Jesus has done from the very beginning. From the very first time that Jesus came into this world, even as a little baby, yes. He came into a realm which was full, we could say, of spiritual lepers. 
You see, when we're told in the book of John, the gospel of John chapter 1, that the word of God, which is Jesus Christ, that became flesh and dwelt among us, I think we are also to understand that declaration, understand that announcement of God taking up residence in a world that's inhabited by those who are already dead. This world is broken. Well, I don't have to prove that. You probably know that. Looking at the news, reading stories, looking at your social media feeds. There's brokenness every time you scroll. Full of sin. Full of darkness. Full of things that leave you shuddering. Which means that Just by the very fact of God coming into this world. That God is drawing near. He's coming close to those who share a common condition. We are all sinners. Sinners are all that there are. You walk out this door, you're going to come across a sinner. You go into the grocery store, you're coming across sinners. You go through the bank line, that's a sinner standing in the window. Everywhere you go, you're coming across those who are filled with sin. And yes, just like leprosy, there is no cure, no remedy for our condition. Which means that as Jesus comes into this world, he's coming into a world full of dead men walking. That's what he does. He enters into countries that are quote-unquote off limits. He enters into communities that are off limits, Jesus does. Because there is no cure, there is no remedy apart from him. He is the only cure for the malady of sin and the affliction of our spiritual leprosy, if you will. Otherwise... What? Ephesians 2.1. We are dead in trespasses and sins right where we are. Otherwise, as it says in John chapter 3, we are condemned already where we stand. In fact, let me just go there. I just want to read that in John 3. Those famous verses um, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Because it proves this very thing. John 3, 16, that really famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is where we get the crux of it all. For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is Jesus' mission. He's taking up world, uh, taking up residence, taking up a spot in the world that's already condemned where it is. It's a world full of sinners. Sinners caught, caught in trespasses and sins. And all of that is true. All of the hopelessness of that case, all of the hopelessness of that affliction, all of the, uh, the isolation and separation and all of those horrible things that go along with sin and leprosy, all of those things are true and exist. That is until Jesus shows up. Because when Jesus arrives, just as he does here in this passage, when he shows up, mercy shows up. That brings me to my second lesson. A lesson about our common condition, but number two, a lesson about his uncanny mercy. Because as Jesus is passing by, 
Entering a world that's full of uh, people who are considered already dead. These perhaps already dead guys all begin shouting out to him. Jesus, have mercy on us. Well, notice they say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our bodies. That they call Jesus master, I think, is a good indication that they had heard some of the rumors surrounding this healing guy from Nazareth. This master term is often employed when it's talking about Jesus being a miracle worker. So truly, perhaps news had spread really fast, really far, and really wide about this guy who was going around from Nazareth healing people, touching people, and bringing them back to life, restoring them, giving them health. And you can imagine what that did to other leper colonies, especially when you consider that earlier in Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 5, he's already healed a leper. They know perhaps that that is true. They have heard the stories. They've heard about this guy that Jesus touched and healed of his leprosy instantly. So when they see him, they see hope. They see hope that we don't have to live in these leprous bodies anymore. Thanks, thanks be to God. By all accounts, these lepers, as they cry out for mercy, they're just crying out for relief from the afflictions that they have, from the horrible uh, pain that they are suffering from all these ailments that they have been enduring for all of these long years that they've had this horrible disease of leprosy. They were craving in this moment for this miracle worker they've heard about perhaps to just do something for their condition. Heal us, please. We want to see our families again. We want to hug our wives and kids again. We want to get our lives back. It's a good motivation that they cry out. But Jesus responds to them in a very interesting and perhaps even unexpected manner. Notice verse 14. They cry out, have mercy. And Jesus says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Which is an interesting response for a couple of different reasons. This response, though, was, of course, keeping with the law of Moses. As you read Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, it says that anyone who uh, uh, has leprosy has to go before the priest. And if your leprosy is clearing up, you have to go before the priest and get sort of an authorized declaration that you are now clean. Which is sort of the papers, so to speak, that you could re-enter normal life. You had to get this declared by a priest in keeping with the laws of Moses. So what's so surprising is this cure that Jesus prescribes. Because again, he commands them to go, but he doesn't do anything else. Go with me to Luke chapter 5, just to, by way of contrast. Luke chapter 5, look at verse 12. Luke 5, 12, it says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. 
There, Jesus actually physically places his hand on that man, on that leper, and heals him in an instant. Here, what does Jesus do? He just says, go to the priest. As if you are already clean. Which, of course, they know that they're not. They're standing there. Nothing has happened. Jesus hasn't knelt down and made a little paste in the mud like he has done before with guys with, with, with blind men or whatever. He hasn't done any sort of miraculous or weird sign. He hasn't even prayed. He hasn't done anything. There's no indication that they will be made whole other than his word. He's just said, go before the priests. He doesn't even tell them that they'll be cleansed. He just says, go as if you already are clean and already have been made whole. And all they had to go on was Jesus' word. Just take my word for it. You can imagine almost Jesus saying. And you can, I think, likewise imagine their disappointment. That's it? That's all you're going to do? No, like, pizzazz? No, crazy sort of demonstration of your power? No, amazing show of grace? You're not even going to touch us? You're not even going to pray? You're just going to tell us to go? And I imagine I was trying to put my, my, myself in the minds of one of these lepers here in this story and just kind of looking around. And I imagine one sort of finally speaking and saying, well, we might as well try it. We might as well see what he means. So they start, as I imagine it, walking very slowly towards the nearest synagogue. They're weak and malnourished, afflicted with this horrible disease. And then suddenly, as they're walking, they begin noticing something. Their hands are becoming clearer. All the white blemishes and boils are disappearing before their eyes. And they look to their neighbor on their right. And they look to their neighbor on their left. And they too are becoming cleansed. And I imagine that they start going from a slow walk to just a full out sprint. Because now they are seeing what is happening. They are becoming whole again. They are becoming clean. They are going to get their lives back. Or they are going to go to the priest. And they are going to have everything returned to them. And I imagine they go from this very annoying and begrudging sort of walk. To this laughing and shouting sprint. Because they're being made whole right before their very eyes. As they go, it says in the word, they were cleansed. And then one of them stops in his tracks. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. One realizes perhaps what has just occurred. Or perhaps he, he at least notices just the magnitude of what has just happened. He was healed. He was walking as a leper and he took one more step and he was clean. He had no more leprosy again. And you can see, imagine, that it wasn't just that he was healed as if, you know, you recover from a common cold. Here, he's been given a new lease on life. He's been given his life back. It's almost as if he's been reborn. It's almost as if he's been resurrected. He was a dead man walking earlier in the day. And now, this afternoon, he is now fully clean. He has no more blemishes. He is cleansed. 
And upon realizing this little leper, he retraces his steps. He goes all the way back to Jesus' feet where he falls on his face in just abject humility and reverence. And perhaps he knows slightly that something divine has happened here in this moment. He perhaps perceives that God has bad some sort of part in it because he says he's praising God with a loud voice. But Jesus raises a good point, verse 17. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Where are the other guys? Where are the other ones that likewise experience the same cleansing? Ten lepers were healed. Completely, fully, 100% in a moment as they were walking towards the nearest synagogue. They were all cleansed, all ten of them. But only one said, thank you. Only one came back to Jesus' feet and said, thank you for what you have done. The other nine were, I guess, content with just the physical healing they had received. Their skin was clean. Not realizing that something deeper had just been on display. But I think... The really surprising fact about this scene and the, the truly uh, point that shows us this uncanny mercy of God is not the fact that only one leper says thank you. It's the fact that Jesus heals all ten knowing that only one would come back and say thank you. All ten were healed. All ten were made whole. All ten were given their lives back. And only one came back. And Jesus knew that and healed them all anyways. He didn't give them healing depending on if they would truly appreciate the healing. He didn't give it to them depending on whether they would be truly grateful for what he had given them. He just gave. Which is just to say this. That God in Christ does not give his grace to you and I to the degree that we are grateful. He just gives. And that's a surprising thought. And it ought to stop us in our tracks. Just like this leper. That this is what God does. He continually just gives. Regardless as if we ever truly recognize of what we have been given. But that's who he is. He's a God who gives himself away. He gives his very life for the sake of those who often will never realize it. Never say thank you. This is what he's done on the cross. This is exactly what Jesus has shown us on the cross. Where he made a way for every sinner ever to be saved. He gave them clearance. He gave them forgiveness and a gift wrapped in a bow. He gave them everything that they might need to be declared whole. And not only that, be declared righteous. As it says in 1 Timothy 2. That he gave himself as a ransom for all. On the cross, Jesus paid everyone's debt. No sinner has a sin that's unpaid for. They just have sin that's not been forgiven because they haven't ever received the gift of salvation. This is the mind-blowing fact of the cross that that's what Jesus does. He makes a way for all to be saved through his death. Through the gift of himself. 
And the sad part is, there are still those who are entering into eternity, even right now, having never opened that gift. They go away, perhaps with some sort of success that they've achieved in their life. Success, mind you, which is owed, yes, even to God's common grace that he gives to all individuals. A token of his benevolence, and yet they never realize Never realize that something deeper is amiss. See, the gospel shows us this uncanny mercy of God, which gives himself to one and all. And he says, I am your salvation. And yet there are those who just go their own way. They never return and say thank you. The gospel tells us that we are declared righteous by a mere word. Just like these lepers were told to go to the priest. We, yes, you and I here this morning, we can go to the Father as if we are already righteous. Because by Jesus' word, we are. Just like the lepers, they were told to go to the priest just as if they were already clean. That's you and I here this morning. We are given this gift here unconditionally, unilaterally. It comes from God to us. No expectations attached to it. No strings. No fine print telling us there's some qualification we have to meet in order for this news to be good for us. There was no sort of extra clause in this declaration that Jesus gave them that told them they had to meet certain things in order to be cleansed. He just said, go before the priest. And they were cleansed as they were walking. And the same with you and I here this morning. That when Jesus gives himself to us, he just gives. And the fact is, he's already given himself. Nails were spiked between his palms and on his feet as a demonstrable sign that God has given himself to a world of sinners that they might be saved from their sin. This is what he does. He's a giving God. He gives us uncanny mercy. Which leads me lastly to the last point in the text this morning. A lesson about our common condition, a lesson about his uncanny mercy, and lastly, a lesson about our proper response. Because it is interesting, only one leper responds appropriately. Which I think he has a very important lesson to show us in this response that he demonstrates as he comes back to Jesus' feet. Because notice this leper's gratitude as he falls at the feet of his healer. Notice verse 15 again. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. A couple of interesting, I think, little tidbits about this leper who comes back. Of course, we know that he's a Samaritan, which I think is not just a throwaway detail, obviously. It's not just something that Luke has thrown in for extra sauce. He, I think, is making a really important point about this whole thing that Jesus has come declaring, that his kingdom, yes, not just includes lepers, it includes lepers who are also Samaritans. (laughs) 
which to the Jews was doubly outrageous. Which is why he's so often mentioning these whom the Jews would rather keep at arm's distance. Such is why we have that long passage in John chapter 4 of the Samaritan woman at the well. He's making a point that my kingdom includes the people that you probably don't think it includes. Samaritans, lepers, tax collectors. The wrong sorts of people. At least in your eyes, those are the ones who I'm embracing, whom I'm welcoming, whom I'm inviting to come and follow me. This leper was a Samaritan. He was also a Samaritan who gave thanks. Which is an interesting thing to note, that he comes back to a Jew and he falls at his feet. No longer at a distance because of his leprosy. Now that he's whole, he comes right up to Jesus' feet and he falls on his face and just begins worshiping. Paying homage and reverence to the one who had healed him. Which is another great detail because he's a Samaritan who's giving thanks and he's praising God alone. You notice that? It says in verse 15, he's, he turned back praising God. He didn't just praise Jesus, the, the miracle worker from Nazareth. He is praising Jehovah, praising Yahweh. And he's praising this one. And he's saying, yes, he has done it. He has done something in me. Which I think is Luke's little clue at Jesus' identity, of course. He is God in the flesh. And even the Samaritan was aware of that. But I think all of, all of that is to say this, that the Samaritan leper here who was healed, I think shows you and I the proper way to respond to God, which is by worshiping. I think this leper shows us how to worship. Because here, this pitiful little leper who is made whole by a mere word of God is just struck with this intense desire to go back and worship at the feet of his healer. Just giving thanks. Just saying thank you. When he comes back to the feet of Jesus, he's not looking to pay God back by doing some sort of penance. He's not looking to pay God back by saying a certain amount of prayers or saying a certain amount of confessions. He's not looking to curry more favor by doing an orderly number of things in his worship. He's not looking at any of that. He is simply coming back and saying, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you have accomplished. Thank you for what you have finished. I think the same ought to be said of our worship. That when we cross the threshold of church, we cross those doors, our thoughts ought not to be driven by what we can get or what we can do. That's not worshiping, that's actually consuming. We're not consumers when we come into the church service. We are worshipers. Which just means I think we ought to have our hearts just to be so captured and so captivated that we just can't help but worship because of what we have. We have Jesus. Have you let that thought sink into your heart and soul and mind? You are a sinner who's been made whole, been made righteous by Jesus' word. 
When you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you know what is happening? Jesus is applying the forgiveness of his cross to your life. And it is done. You are healed. You are cleansed. You have Jesus, my friends. Don't ever let that thought escape your head. I think it's a thought that ought to bring us to our knees. A thought that ought to make us weep. I thought that ought to make us cry out and shout for joy. It's a thought that ought to make us worship. Because when we come here together as the family of God, we're not giving God something. We're not paying him back for anything. We're responding to his gift. And we're simply saying, thank you, God. I love you so much that I want and I can't wait to serve you. Your service for God will take on a whole new demeanor when you realize it's not paying God back for something. It comes out of the overflow of your heart because you just can't help but serve him because of how good he is to you. How good he has shown himself to be. That's worship. Saying thank you for something that is finished, for something that is accomplished. Worship happens when we realize both our fatal disease of sin and the very ready deliverance from that sin in Christ alone. And when we realize that, that's when worship happens. A couple days ago, this, this is extra. A couple days ago, I went and saw Sight and Sound. My first time down there at that theater, we were watching their showing of David. And throughout it, I was quite impressed. I've never seen a production like that before. And I was told by a couple of you here in this, in this congregation that I should go. And finally, I've done it. <laughs> finally, I've checked that off the list. And I can't wait to go again. In one point after the intermission, they have the character of David. And he begins singing this song called Creation Sings, which is, I didn't fact check this, but I think it's a mashup of Psalm 8 and Psalm 91. But he's singing. And they have all around you in this huge amphitheater. All of these displays of creation. And as David is singing. He's singing about the God who loves him. And even now I'm going to start crying. Because when I was sitting there. I couldn't help but be captivated. That that is the God that we get to serve. That that God who spoke all of that into existence. He is the one who loves me. He's the one who loves you this morning. I was brought almost face to face with that. As I was sitting in that theater. The whole like second half of David I don't remember because I was crying. Because that's the God we have. When you worship, that's the God that you get to serve. The God who spoke all that into existence. And yes, who spoke and knew you from your mother's womb. Who spoke and declared all things to be. And yes, who declares on the cross when he says it is finished. And by that word, you are made whole. When we come to church, and I'm even preaching to myself too, 
We ought to see ourselves as lepers. A disgusting thought, perhaps. But I think it's a thought that gets us into the right frame of mind in terms of coming into the church and worshiping because we don't get to give God anything. We are those who receive. We are sinners who've been saved by grace. And all we can say is thank you. Words which sound so menial and sound not even sufficient to declare what we know is true. But the only words that are only words that can come up. Thank you. We are those who've been made whole by the word of the Father, by the word that has become flesh for you and I. And here this morning, my friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ right here, right now, you are whole, you are righteous, you are declared holy in the eyes of God. And yes, no matter what blemishes you may have in your past or the faults and failures that you even see right around you in the midst of where you are right now, you can think of a word, you can think of a thought. You can think of an action that you have done and it makes you shudder. In the eyes of God, you are clean. In the eyes of God, you are whole. No spots. No blemishes. No leprosy. No sin. Because in Christ, you are made whole. Because of Jesus, you are cleansed. May we just say thank you. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.